Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySelfland.com. So we're doing Samson. We're moving on into Judges 14. We're also going to touch on the Delilah story today, the fun one. Uh, next week, you're in for a treat. Like I said last week, I'm actually serving in the uh, early years next uh, week. So those of you who don't want to drop off your kids next week, is probably a good idea not to. But uh, um, Tom actually has a message next week. It's going to be a real treat. But uh, we're going to keep going with Samson here today. And I'm going to start kind of where we were leaving off last week, and then we're just going to keep going, and then we're going to jump over to the Delilah story. We're going to be talking about being enslaved by our appetites today. And the last verse in chapter 13, as we saw last week, was, And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him, that Samson, in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtaol. And, and remember last week we talked about this, the Spirit of the Lord stirring in him was not stirring him uh, to pray or to praise and worship, which is something the Spirit of the Lord does do, but the Spirit of the Lord was stirring up trouble. And so the Spirit of the Lord was stirring Samson to, to, to leave Israel, go down into Philistine territory because he was stirring up a fight. And so we go into verse 1. Now, of course, as we're going to see here in this thing, the Spirit of the Lord is stirring Samson because he wants to stir up a fight, but the Spirit of the Lord isn't stirring up Samson the way this fight is going to start. And Samson's going to make some, uh, some, uh, some lurid and bad choices, but that's not the Spirit of the Lord's fault, but the Spirit of the Lord is involved in this whole thing, sovereignly over it all, picking a fight. And so verse 1 of chapter 14, Samson went down to Timnah, and Timnah was in the Philistine territory, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah, now get her for me as my wife." But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives? And there's a line you don't hear from a lot of parents today. Um, <laughs> or among all our people, that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines. But Samson said to his father, Go get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. And there's a bunch of things we're going to be taking out of this passage. But the first thing we need to understand here is that, that Samson should not be falling in love with a Philistine woman. It's okay that he's attracted to a Philistine woman. You can't help that, okay? She's beautiful, but he should not be chasing after or marrying a Philistine woman, okay? When, when it says that the Spirit of the Lord was stirring in him and stirring up a fight, the Spirit of the Lord is going to end up using Samson's weaknesses and turning them for good to fight against the Philistines. But the Spirit of the Lord is not the one who's tempting Samson to do this. The Spirit of the Lord could have stirred up a fight a different way. I mean, if it wasn't for Samson's weakness, the Spirit of the Lord could have stirred up the Philistines to attack the Israelites, and then Samson could have fought them that way. But in this case, the Spirit of the Lord is going to take advantage of a weakness of Samson. And part of this is, I think, God's mercy on Samson. You say, like, why would God use a weakness? Like, why would he do that? This story here is happening 20 years before the Delilah story we're going to look at later in this message. And I believe that the Spirit of the Lord is doing a bunch of things here. First of all, he's trying to start a fight with the Philistines. But at the same time, he's trying to expose for Samson a weakness that is going to end up being Samson's downfall. But he's hoping that if Samson has a bad experience here, he's going to turn around so he doesn't have to be his ruin. Okay? But again, it's just really important to understand the sovereignty of God in all of this. The sovereignty of God is moving throughout this entire story. The credit goes to God. God is moving behind the scenes. But you have to understand that the Spirit of God is not moving him to do bad. 
Okay, the Spirit of the Lord is going to turn the bad for good. It's going to turn it into a fight to help the Israelites. But the Spirit of God does not want Samson marrying this Philistine. Samson should not be running after a Philistine woman. And God was very clear about this matter with the Israelites. And it's all over the Old Testament. He had explicitly forbid them from marrying out of the foreign nations around them. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'm going to just read you just one passage here. You're going to see something here. Uh, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and in Deuteronomy, the Philistines aren't named yet just because they weren't there yet. Okay, but they come later. But God had forbidden them from all the idolatrous nations right around them. Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly for you are a people holy. You can just see God's heart in this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. I just love that. And do you know that you and I here this morning, we, God wants us to be his treasured possession. As he says to the Israelites, the reason he doesn't want them marrying these idolatrous peoples is because I've chosen you to be my treasured possession. He, just, he loves these people out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, okay? And so if, if I'm Satan and I want to, so here's this people, the Israelites have made a covenant with God and they're supposed to worship God and God alone. If I'm Satan and I want to, if I want to break up this relationship and I want to destroy this people, my number one snare will be intermarriage because there's something when you fall in love with somebody else, right? If, when you fall in love with somebody else and God knows this, this is why he's forbidding it. When you fall in love with someone else, there's just something that happens. This is what it means to fall in love with them and to love them and to pursue them is that the things that are important to them are going to become important to you, right? And so God knows that if these Israelite men go and marry these, idol- these women from these idolatrous pagan nations, he knows that those women that are going to bring in their gods into these homes and the men, even if they don't stop worshiping Yahweh, the one true God, they're going to mix in worship for these other gods because that's what their wife, who they love, is worshiping. And they're going to raise their kids in this kind of environment. And God knows that that is going to be Satan's number one snare. And you see it throughout the Old Testament. It was one of his biggest snares for the people of Israel was intermarriage uh, with these pagan, idolatrous nations. Now, before I go any further, I do want to say one thing. And uh, most of you would, would understand this implicitly, but because of some historical stuff that's happened, I think it's important that we say this. Uh, these passages, unfortunately, in the past, especially in the United States, uh, passages like this were used to preach separation of the races, okay? And, it was, and these passages like these were used to preach that there should not be interracial marriage. You know, a, a black person should not marry a white person or an Asian person or whatever. These kind of passages were used to say that the Bible teaches separation of the races. And unfortunately, as a legacy of that, because uh, many pastors who were ignorant, or some of them were just downright evil and hateful, but some of them just ignorant, but as a legacy of this, many people even today still feel like the Bible is, is a racist, kind of prejudiced Book, but the thing you have to understand is this, this passage about not intermarrying with the other nations has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has nothing to do with not marrying people of other races. In fact, I can show you many examples in the Old Testament of interracial marriage. For example, Moses, something that most people don't realize is that Moses actually ended up, after Zipporah died, Moses actually ended up marrying a black woman, which I think is really neat. I'll show you this. 
Uh, Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. I, I think when you come to church, you should at least learn one new thing every day. Hopefully you're going to get something also applicable to your life. But uh, <laughs> Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Now, uh, again, this is, some of the people are going, I thought he married Zipporah, who is from Midian. Uh, yes, he did. That was his wife that we learned about earlier. We don't know what happened to her next. Probably a lot of theologians think that she died. But he married again, and Miriam and Aaron actually complained against him because he had married a Cushite woman. Now, uh, the land of Cush is what is today Ethiopia. And, uh, and so these were Ethiopians. In fact, elsewhere in the Bible, it talks about Ethiopians being dark-skinned. Uh, one verse, Jeremiah 13, verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? The word there for Ethiopian is the exact same word, Cush, as you find in Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. So Moses will have married an Ethiopian woman, and he was criticized for it. And, but God disciplined Miriam and Aaron severely for their criticism of Moses. Now you say, well, how come Moses was allowed to marry a woman from a different tribe or a different, different ethnicity when God had just told Moses they're not allowed to marry the, the, the neighboring tribes? And here's the difference between what Moses did and what God was commanding the people of Israel not to do. See, God's commandment had nothing to do with race or ethnicity. It had to do with who did they worship. And so right throughout the whole Old Testament, any ethnic group or race could join themselves to the Jewish people if they forsook their gods, if they said, we are not following our gods anymore, we're going to follow only the one true God, and if they joined themselves to the Jewish people, they became like a Jew. And so it wasn't about race, it was about who do you worship. And there's many other examples I could look at. Uh, for example, the book of Ruth. There's a whole book in here, the book of Ruth, which is about Ruth who was not a Jew, ethnically. And you know the book of Ruth, she's a hero, or uh, the, the, the woman Ruth in the book of Ruth. Uh, she followed Naomi, who was a Jew, right? And she said to Naomi, your God will be my God. And she forsakes her God, she goes into Israel. Later on, we find her in the genealogy of Jesus. So Jesus himself has mixed ethnicity flowing in his veins. And also, not just Ruth, but there's also Rahab. Rahab lived in Jericho. She was a Canaanite. She was not ethnically a Jew. When the Israelites come, we all know the story. She rescues the spies. She says, I'll become one of you. I'll worship your God. We're all afraid of your God anyway. And so she marries in. She marries a guy named Salmon. Did I say something funny or bad? I might have. I tend to do that. Um, <laughs> and if we look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, and here's Jesus. Uh, uh, and Salmon, the father, father of Boaz, this is Jesus' great, 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 great uh, grandmothers uh, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth and over the father of Jesse. So we see that Jesus himself has interracial blood flowing in his veins. The Old Testament commands about not intermarrying had nothing to do with race. They had nothing to do with ethnicity. The Bible is not a racist document. The Bible does not teach against interracial marriage. The Bible does not teach separation of the races. What the Bible teaches against is interfaith marriage. Though the Bible teaches against, and that's still, that's still something that applies to us today. Those of you who are here today and you're young people, uh, uh, what the Bible does teach is do not chase after someone who doesn't love Jesus. Because they'll turn your heart to other gods. It doesn't matter what race they are. It doesn't matter what ethnicity. That's all fine and good. But what do, who, who do they love? Because if you, if you date someone that isn't passionate about Jesus, and you might think, well, uh, you know, sometimes women think this. I'm going to win him over. And you know what, ladies, I'll just tell you something. You might win him over. He might pretend until you're married. Okay, because you're pretty, and so he'll say, okay, I love Jesus too. And then after you're married, he'll forget about that and say, you know, I never really loved Jesus. I just thought you were pretty. 
And so you don't, you don't work on changing someone after dating. You just don't chase. And guys, you, you look at someone, you find they're pretty. This is what Samson's downfall. He said, she's pretty. She's right in my eyes, so get her for me. Well, you can't help the attraction part. That's fine that you felt attracted for her, but now stay away from her. Don't, don't date her unless she loves Jesus. And I, I mean, I could show you examples. I, we know of them. We work here in a church, and we see lots of examples. This causes lots of pain later in life. Because on the one hand, you want to love Jesus with all your heart. On the other hand, a person that you love and have committed your life to yeah, doesn't love Jesus with all their heart, and that causes you to be torn in the middle. And it's not that it, that it can't work, and some of you are here, and you, and you gave your life to Jesus after you were married or whatever, and so you make it work, but it's certainly difficult. And so the Bible warns us about running after people and falling in love with people who don't love our God. And so we go back to the Samson story. We're going to see how much trouble these godless women caused Samson. In fact, they were the source of his ultimate ruin and downfall. And the question is, Why? Samson knew he had a special calling from God, and he knew he wasn't supposed to be chasing Philistine women. He knew this. Okay, so why? Well, we go back to the passage, and we already know. I mentioned about the eyes, but let's read it again. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. And we skip ahead to the end of uh, verse 3 there. Get her for me, so, for she is right in my eyes. So Samson knows he's not supposed to go after Philistine women. His parents remind him of that. He knows inside. But his body wants something that his heart knows is wrong. He sees her. He wants her. He has to have her. That is a huge problem. That is a huge problem that's a dangerous place to be when our bodily appetites and desires overrule what we know in our hearts is wrong. That's a bad place to be. And again, I want to emphasize again, um, we have these two sets of desires at work inside of each of us. Uh, Romans chapter 7 talks about these two uh, sets of desires that are at work within each of us. If you're following Jesus, deep down within each of us, there is a desire to please the Lord. And, and, and if you've ever given your life to Jesus... All of us. It doesn't matter. So you might be really struggling here today. You might be totally uh, weak. And you might be in bondage to sin. But somewhere deep inside each of us, and God sees that, is, and Paul talks about in Romans 7, is a desire to please the Lord. But then we also have this other set of desires. We have these, these bodily appetites. And these bodily appetites aren't bad in and of themselves. But when they overpower our desire to obey Jesus, that's when it becomes a problem. Okay? And so again... It's not the appetite itself that's a problem. It's when the appetite becomes master of your life. It's, it's, when you, it's when the appetite ceases to serve God honoring actions and behavior and relationships, but when you rather begin to serve the appetite. Once the appetite is master, that's when it's become sin, and that's when it can destroy your life. So again, God made men to be attracted to women and women to be attracted to men. That's all part of his creation. That's all good. Okay, and I've sometimes prayed with guys who, who struggle with lust, and sometimes what they want to pray is, Lord, I just don't want to be attracted to, to women anymore because they just, they're just so tired of dealing with lust. And I never pray that with people because they say the attraction is fine. That's part of a God-given thing. It's supposed to help you in marriage with your wife to drive you for intimacy. Okay, in my, in my, I've been married now 14 years with my wife, LaDawn. I still think she's incredibly attractive. I don't need to talk too long about that. It's going to get really uh, awkward up here, but I find her... <laughs> Very attractive, and that, that, be, that attraction 
drives me to do all kinds of things. It drives me to try to surprise her with flowers on special occasions and write her little notes and, and give her back rubs and foot rubs after a long day. It just, it drives me to sometimes even vacuum the, the floor to just surprise her and make her feel good, okay? And where do I get that motivation? Because she just looks good, okay? And that's a God-given thing. So there's an appetite there. There's an attraction. But you see how within marriage, the attraction serves to deepen the relationship. So the attraction serves to make me a better husband. The attraction serves to make me serve her. So the attraction is serving the relationship. God made us to love each other in marriage. God made us to love each other's people. And so that attraction is there for a very good reason. Now, but when you flip that around and when you, instead of when the, the attraction doesn't serve a relationship, but when I begin to serve the attraction, so when a young man goes on the, on the internet to now, because of an attraction, because of a hunger, because of an appetite, and he wants to look at pictures and, and videos and pornography and things like that, he's now, this attraction is no longer serving a relationship. It's no longer serving God-honoring behavior or loving other people. Now he's serving the appetite. The appetite becomes an end, an end in itself, right? And so, again, the problem with Samson, and this is what happens with Samson, okay? The problem is not Samson thinks the woman's beautiful. At that point, that's fine, okay? Everything's in working order there. Now go home and find a godly woman, okay? But Samson doesn't do that. His appetite rules his life. And when your appetite rules your life, you will become a slave. When your appetites rule your life, you will become a slave. A slave. Jesus says this in John 8, 34. There's no neutral ground here. When it comes to appetites, you can't dabble with them. They either serve God and they either serve relationships or you serve them. There's no just platonic relationship between you and your appetites. And Jesus said this in John 8, 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. It's not a neutral thing. It's not something you can just dabble with. You know, I just kind of have my appetite here and we hang out together and stuff every now and then. It's either serving something good or you are serving it. And Samson was enslaved. Here's a guy with a tremendous calling, with a tremendous anointing on his life. I mean, an angel foretold his birth. He's called to be a deliverer of his people. There is so much potential there except he serves and becomes a slave to his appetites. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to that sin. And Paul says, well, I can show you many, many scriptures. Titus 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passions and pleasures there, that's our appetites. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So now let's go back to the Samson story. Let me show you what slavery to your appetites will do to you. And I want to show you four things, what slavery to your appetites will do to you. And then at the end, we'll look at a little bit practical. How do we live not out of our appetites? But Judges 14, verse 3, the first thing that happens when we become enslaved to our appetites is we become self-deceived. And like verse 3 there, his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And this is just classic. People who are enslaved to their appetites, everyone around them, all the trusted people around them can see that the decisions they're making are wrong, but they can't see it. When you become enslaved to your appetites, the one of the first things that happens is you become self-deceived. And the thing is about self-deception is uh, when you're self-deceived, you don't know that you're deceived, Okay? That otherwise you wouldn't be self-deceived. It's actually kind of a scary place to be is because everyone around you can see it, but you can't see it. You just want to fulfill that hunger. 
You just want to fill that appetite. And so we become experts at rationalizing. We can find Bible verses or all kinds of reasons. Well, this happened and she did this to me and he did that to me and all these things happened in my life and that's why I'm justified in doing this. And everybody at church, all the leaders you trust, all the people in your family who love God and you trust, they all tell you it's wrong. The Bible says it's wrong. What you're doing is going to destroy your life. But when you are enslaved to your appetites, you can't see it. You rationalize it away. And you have all the reasons why it's okay. And so you rush headlong into this. Samson's parents told him, don't do it. You're not supposed to do it. We raised you to be a Nazarite. You know better than this. The Spirit of the Lord has blessed you. And you have experienced God. And you should know better. And he says, she's just right in my eyes. He's just enslaved. It's okay. I've got this. And so when we are trying to fill our appetites, it should be a huge red flag to us. When all the people we trust are telling us it's wrong, no matter how good the, good the reasons are inside of you, you even found Bible verses that, that you think make what you're doing okay, when you're trying to fill your appetites and everyone around you is telling you that it's wrong, that's a huge red flag that you're in self-deception. The next thing is, though, not only does it, do we become self-deceived, but very shortly after becoming self-deceived, or pretty much at the same time, we become foolish. We become stupid and blind our appetites when we serve. When our appetites serve the relationships, they're such God-given things. I mean, it could be, we could be talking about any appetite here. Even, uh, I mean, even, even food, okay? I mean, God gave us an appetite for food. We need food to live. But did you know that God gave us food for so much more than just to get uh, energy inside of us? He gave us food to connect with people. The two biggest commandments in the Bible are love God and love people. And if you look at pretty much all the appetites God has given us, they have to do with those two things. But when you divorce them from those two things, they become slave masters. So even food, you know, you look at throughout, you know, thousands of years of human history, for most of human history, how people have eaten is very different than how we eat today. And, you know, you'd have a whole bunch of people in many cultures, it would be the women, but in some cultures it would be the men too, but you'd have the women all together, they're cooking, it would take a long time to prepare a meal, they'd all be together cooking the meal, then everybody would get together, it would take them a while to eat together, but they would spend time together, and eating was all about culture, passing on stories. You would, you would leave a meal time feeling connected, and kids grew up in this environment of eating together like this. They had a strong sense of identity, who we are, who my family is, who my tribe is. They had a strong, you know, sense of history and all this sort of stuff, and it was all through food. Food was actually given to us, not just to make us full, but actually to connect us with people. But you look at our culture today, we have in large measure divorced food from connecting us to people because we're in such a hurry and we're so busy. And so we have lots of just, and again, nothing wrong with zipping through the drive-thru. I, I mean, I ate McDonald's again this week. I, I love it. That's, that's great stuff. I, I love burgers, okay? And some of you are health freaks. I'm not. And I just like to eat burgers and French fries. I love them. I ate them again Friday night at Montana's. Just awesome stuff. But uh, So I'm not against those sorts of things, but what I'm saying is we have this danger. We've divorced food from relationship. And so we have lots of people just hurriedly eating their food and just trying to get energy. And then some people, what happens is their emotion, like emotionally we feel empty. We're not connected to people. And so we're looking to, to, to fill that with something. Some people fill it by overeating then. And they just become emotional eaters. And the, and the, the eating actually becomes their master. Other people become slaves on the other end. They have emotional needs. They try to fill it by becoming hyper-nutritious. 
And they, and they become hyper. And it's not that it's bad to be nutritious. I mean, you have an exercise plan. You're trying to lose weight. You're trying to become healthy. Nothing wrong with all that. But when the food becomes an idol and it actually keeps you from connecting with people or when you're trying to do it instead of connecting with people, this is when our appetites enslave us. So it can be sex. It can be lust. It can be food. It can be anything. All of our appetites were given to us ultimately to help us connect to God and to people. And when we divorce and we get into huge trouble and we become like animals, when you begin to serve these appetites, rather than these appetites serving to make better relationships and stuff, when we serve the appetites, we become, literally we become foolish. And, and in some cases, we become like animals. And, and clearly, the, the sexual appetite and guys, I've seen guys do so many stupid things over lust. It's, it's really insane. But literally, when your appetites become your master, you almost become like an animal sometimes. And we see this with... with uh, Samson, and uh, I just almost, I keep almost calling him Stan. I don't know why. So if, if there's a Stan here today, maybe there's a prophetic word for you. No, I'm just kidding. Totally not that. <laughs> Stan loved the woman in the Valley of Sorek. No. Uh, we're going to jump ahead to chapter 16, verse 4. And because I, I want, we got to go to Delilah. Because like, I got to show you when your appetites enslave you, literally, I mean, I, I want you to read this with fresh eyes. It literally makes you foolish. And so here's Samson. After this, he loved, and this is now 20 years later. This is about 20 years after the Timnah incident. He did not learn his lesson. I really believe in chapter 14 that God is trying to help him have a disaster early in his life so that he can turn things around. But instead of turning it around after Timnah, it gets worse and worse and worse. He just keeps being enslaved by his appetite for, for uh, lust, for, for Philistine women. And so 20 years later, he's still in this. He's in his 40s now, probably. And so after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah, okay? And we could probably put quotations around the word love there. Lusted is probably a better word for it. But anyway, verse 5. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to humble him. And we will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound so that one could... Uh, subdue you, okay? So the Philistines really, really hate Samson, okay? And Samson should be smarter than this already, okay? So you're dating a woman, okay, who is part of your, the family of your sworn enemies, and then she asks you, starts asking you interesting questions about how you could be tied up. This is probably time to leave. <laughs> like, why would you fall asleep on her lap? That's not a good, that's not a good idea, okay? So... <laughs> Samson said to her, if they, now he has some smarts here because he's going to lie to her. So you can see he doesn't totally trust this woman, okay? And so again, you know, guys and girls, if you're dating and you're having to lie to each other already, probably not a good uh, foundation to be building this off of. But anyway, Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man, okay? So then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Now at this point, the situation should be pretty obvious to, to Samson, okay? Okay, again, I want you to just imagine, okay? Let's say you have some sworn enemies who want to kill you, okay? And they have a daughter, and you start to date this daughter. She begins to ask you things like, one day you're watching a movie, she's like, Do you have any deathly allergies that if you ate this, it would kill you? peanuts. Later, you're eating a sandwich, and it's like, well, this tastes a little weird. You open it up, it's peanut butter. Probably time to leave, okay? Like, there's a big billboard on this woman saying, I'm trying to get you, okay? 
So Samson says, so, you know, what? How could you be bound and how would you lose your strength? Well, you know, if you tie me up seven feet. So she ties him up. Like at this point, okay, relationship over. He keeps going, okay? And we just think that's, that's insane. And he's so enslaved to his appetites. He does this two more times before we get to the final time, all right? He just keeps going back and going back. Verses 10 through 13, he comes back. He tells her something different. Then verses 14 through 16, he comes back. He tells her something different again, but this time he's starting to break down a little bit and he actually gets close to the hair. He tells her, you know, if you tied up a, basically a sewing machine in my hair, it would work. And, and again, every time she does it and he keeps going back and you go, how stupid can this guy get? But before we get too hard on Samson here, 3,000 years later, I'm still regularly seeing stories that match with this one. When, when we get enslaved by our appetites, we do this. I know all kinds of people who do incredibly stupid things because they're enslaved to their appetites. Like, you've been married for how long? And you're just going to run out on your spouse now? Like, are you kidding me? You're, do you know what you're going to do to your kids? Do you know what you're going to do to all your wife? Do you know how complicated you're going to make the rest of your life? Do you realize what you're doing to your legacy? Do you realize it'll even hurt your finances and this and that? You tell them all this stuff, and they still do it. Why would you do something that stupid? Because in the moment, you're just completely enslaved to your appetite. Nothing matters to you. You can't think rationally. All you can see is, I've got to fill this appetite. This just feels so good. It doesn't matter to me that now, 10 years later, it will matter to them. That's the thing. You know, I've never run into anyone yet that 10 years, 15 years down the road, it's like, aren't you so glad you left your marriage and that you committed adultery? Like, aren't you just so happy? Like, your life must be a lot better now. Yeah, you wouldn't believe it. Like, it's awesome now. Like, just commit adultery. That's the best thing ever and all that sort of stuff. I've never run into anyone like that. Amen. Never. Even the ones where they repent and later on they pick up the pieces and they move towards God, there's always a cost for the rest of their lives. So why would we do something like that when we know it's wrong, when we know it will hurt us? It's because we're enslaved. Our appetites overrule our logical thinking. That's exactly what happens to Samson. You can't even believe. It's almost painful to read how foolish and stupid the guy gets. But this is what happens when we become enslaved to our passions. And this brings us to the next thing. Not only do you become self-deceived, not only then do you become foolish, there's a certain point, and this is a really bad point, which is when you are enslaved to your passions for long enough, there comes a point where you just become ap apathetic. You no longer can even care about the destruction you're, you're causing. You just, you no longer even care what you're doing to yourself. There comes a point where I think even a lot of people can see that they're headed down a path of destruction, but they've been enslaved to these appetites for so long, they see no hope of getting out from it, they just cease to care. You know what? I'm just going to feed this appetite. It's all I know. It's all I'm going to do. And they even know that they're causing pain that they're on the path of destruction, and it's just apathy. And Samson finally gets there too. If you allow your appetites to enslave you for long enough, there will come a part, point where you almost can just say, I know this will be my downfall, but I'm going to do it anyway. And that's actually a scary place to be. That's why I think young people, anybody here, when you start to go down that road of an appetite beginning to master you, you want to turn around as fast as you can because it, it, is, it is a road of slavery and bondage. And you don't want to get to that place where it's like, this is going to be my downfall and I don't care. And that's what happens to Samson. It gets so bad for him that eventually he doesn't care. And so eventually... He just tells her the secret of his strength. Like by this point, he knows every time he has told her, tie me with bow strings, tie me with these kind of strings, you know, wrap a, a sewing machine in my hair, every time she does it, and eventually he's like, you know what? I just, I want to fulfill this lustful appetite. It doesn't matter to me. 
And he tells her. And so, verse 16 here, when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death, and he told her all his heart. And he said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. At this point, he actually pretty much knows what she's going to do. And he's just, he's, just, he's, he's, he's just so blind and apathetic, it doesn't even matter to him anymore. And so, of course, we know what happened ne- happens next, and it's the downfall, and it's the ruin of Samson. That night, Delilah shaves his head, verse 19. She made him sleep on her knees. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And then she began to torment him. And, 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 and again, too, you see this too. You know, you run after someone because of an appetite, because of a lustful appetite, and you think it's love. Later on, you find out it's not love. And so Delilah, who's been leading him on, leading him on this whole time, and the rest of us can all see it's not love. This is terrible. He can't see it. And now she turns around and she actually torments him. And torments him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out at, as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And we talked about this last week. Remember, I said, I don't think Samson had muscles. Because if he had muscles, he still would have been stronger than everybody else. But at this point, and what a sad statement, he did not know that the Lord had left him. And as soon as the Lord left him, he had no more strength. He was just like any other man. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. And that is just a sad, sad story. And all of these stories were put in the Bible for our instruction, Paul says in the New Testament. And so we can look at a story like this, and it is sad. I mean, here's a guy again. What a calling. Tremendous calling. Angel comes to his mom before he's born. This guy's going to be a deliverer of his people. Huge anointing. Like, talk about talent and giftedness. Absolute unbelievable, awesome strength, feats of courage, all this sort of stuff. I mean, he's got anointing. He's got calling. He's got the Spirit of the Lord moving in his life as a young boy already. He's blessed. He's got great parents. He's got it all right there, and he ends up with his eyes gouged out, and he's grinding, you know, at this mill for the Philistines. He's a laughing stock, and this, and this is a, a warning to all of us. This is where if you allow your appetites to enslave you for long enough, this is where we all end up. And so it starts with self-deception. It moves into outright foolishness. Eventually just moves into apathy. You don't even care. I'm on a path of destruction. I'm hurting everyone around me, and I just don't care anymore. And then eventually you end up, the saddest thing is, I think you end up with ordinary. In verse 17, what Samson says there to Delilah, I think is just so instructive there. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I will become weak and be like any other man. And now the thing is, why would a guy who had so much want to be just like everybody else? Like, why would a guy who's got so much going for him want to end up like everybody else? But that's what slavery to our appetites will do to us. And you know what? It's the same for each one of us. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that God created each and every single one of us here today for good works which he planned out in advance for us to do in Christ Jesus. That means that God created you, every single person here, he created you for a reason. You weren't just created to be, uh, you know, a a, a lump of flesh to breathe and eat and, and sleep and then die. He actually made you in Christ Jesus to do some good works, to do things for his kingdom. He made you with a unique personality. He made you with a unique calling. Like, you know, we look at Samson, we go, what a calling he had on his life. In God's eyes, your calling is no less important than his. 
He's given each one of us a calling. He's given each one of us a unique gifting. He's given us all kinds of things. And he's given us, as we talked about last week, Samson, you know, the Holy Spirit would rush upon him and he would do these great strengths, feats of strength. But we have that same Holy Spirit living inside of us. And yet, if we will allow our appetites to enslave us, we will never amount to anything more than ordinary for the kingdom of God. Just like Samson, we'll just end up like any other person because that's what the whole world does. The whole world lives to just please their appetites, to just, to just please their, their appetites. And God says, I gave you those appetites to serve something bigger, but if you serve those, you cannot ever end up to be anything more than just ordinary for the kingdom of God. And I think that is a sad thing. And I want to pick on one thing specifically right here now and because I think there's an appetite here, and it has to do with lust ultimately, but I think, I think the appetite for media in our culture right now is one of the biggest reasons for ordinariness and powerlessness in a Christian church in our culture. And not that media is wrong. It isn't wrong, okay? Um, you know, I mean, I have the internet, and my family, we watch movies together and, and all these sorts of things. It's not that media is wrong, but so many Christians today are spending hours, again, it's just like any appetite. Any appetite, if it serves God's purposes or if it serves relationship, is awesome. It's amazing. That's why God gave us these appetites, okay? But the moment we begin to serve the appetite, the thing enslaves us. And so many Christians today, it's hours and hours and hours and hours and hours a week of media, so, so much so that there's men who, they, they're spending time on media instead of talking to their wives, Instead of going out and serving, instead of going out and making an impact for the kingdom of God, instead of filling your mind with good things. And it's one of the things even that I believe really fuels lust with men because even if you're not overtly looking at pornography, if though our world, our culture is all about feeding the appetites. So if you fill your mind with media, you're going to fill your mind with the message, fill the appetite. You're going to become appetite-focused rather than love-relationship-focused. And there's no way we can rise above ordinary. And it's just like, like Samson. Eventually his appetites made him just like any other man. And if we are so enslaved to that appetite for media, which eventually I believe with many men also leads to lust, but for, it can be anything. It can even just be covetousness, just causing us to want more and more and more and more. But when we fill our minds with that stuff, remember that Samson's downfall started because of what he saw. It was because of what he saw. He saw a Philistine woman. At that part, point, he should have turned around and said, whoa, she's hot. I got to leave. I got to go back. I got to find someone else who's hot, who loves Jesus. I mean, or not Jesus, but God in his case, okay? Um, but many of us, it's because of what he saw. He said, no, she's right from my eyes. I see her. I want her. I have to have her. And many guys today, if you, if, and women too, if we just fill our minds and we just keep looking there to those messages, it will make us ordinary. It will make us enslaved to our appetites. So the question is, what do we do, right? These appetites are powerful. What do we do when our body wants what our heart knows is wrong? God has given us some of these appetites for good, but they're powerful and they can ruin our lives and they become our master. So where do we get the power to say no? And I would just want to first start by saying this. There's more to saying no than just saying no. I mean, we just live in such a culture that's surrounded by media. The answer is not just say no to all media, okay? And in some cases, you might have to do that for a little while. But I think a lot of us feel hopeless because it's like it's just everywhere. How do we say no to it? Well, the thing you have to understand is, is it's not just a matter of saying no. If all we have is just say no, it's like, and I've used this analogy before, 
It's like putting a starving man in front of a table full of junk food and telling him, don't eat the junk food. Well, the guy's starving. Don't eat the just junk food. And he's like there, and he's just, don't eat the junk food. And, and maybe he holds off for a couple of hours. Maybe he holds off only for a couple of minutes. But he's just holding off for dear life. Don't eat the junk food. Don't eat the junk food. And finally he's like, give me some chips and candy, right? Give me a donut. If you want that guy to be able to say no long term, God didn't just make us to say no. Some of us think all there is to Christianity is saying no. Say no to lust. Say no to too much media. Say no to this. Say no to covetousness. Say no to materialism. It's impossible to live the Christian life just by saying no. At some point, we have to learn how to say yes to things that actually fill us up so that then saying no isn't so difficult. And if you want a starving man to say no to the chips and the candy and a pop and the donuts that are on a table, take him inside and feed him some really good food and get him full. Get him full of steak and veggies and potatoes and all kinds of good stuff. Now when he goes back outside and he looks at the table, it's like, oh, have you ever been there? You ever gotten so full that the stuff that was looking good to you last night when you were snacking, now that you're full after supper, it's like, oh, that's, oh, I couldn't even touch that stuff, right? Isn't that what happens? And did you know it's the same with your spirit? The Christian life is not just about saying no. You will be, ultimately, you might hold off. You might say, I don't want to be like Samson. I don't want to be foolish. I don't want to be self-deceived. I don't want to be apathetic. So I just got to say no. You might last a week, a month, maybe a year, if you're really good at saying no. But at some point, God has given us appetites. They need to be filled. They just need to be filled appropriately. And if we don't learn how to fill them and satisfy them, we're never going to be able to stand. We'll end up like Samson anyway, and we'll have had good intentions. But eventually, it's just like, oh, I can't take it anymore. And the reason is because we're all seeking something. Jesus, again, I said this before, but Jesus gave us the two greatest commandments were love God and love people. And those commandments also match up to our greatest need. Our greatest need is to feel connected to other people and to feel connected and loved by God. That's our greatest need. And so these appetites are supposed to help with that. But if you feel this great hole, if you feel this great hole in your relationships with people and this hole in this emptiness, rejection, whatever the reasons are in your relationship with God, that hole will want to be filled and you, and you go to church all the time and you'll, and you'll confess to God, I can't believe I keep falling into this, but as long as there's that hole there and you don't know how to fill it, you will keep going back to appetites to try to fill it. So we've talked lots about connecting to God, and I just want to finish this message with a couple of practical challenges in terms of community, because I don't know if we always talk about community in the sense of it's not just something you do to be a good Christian. It's actually something we need to do because it's how God made us, and it will actually make you strong. See, Samson obviously didn't have much of a walk with God. You know, he had Samson. If you want to talk about spiritual disciplines, Samson had spiritual disciplines. He was a Nazarite. So he grew up his whole life. He was never allowed to eat, as we talked about there a couple weeks ago, grapes or raisins. He never drank wine. He never cut his hair. He never touched dead body. There was a whole bunch of things he did. He basically led a fasted lifestyle. But in the end, he fasted and fasted and fasted, and then he fell. Now, this isn't against fasting. We need to fast. Fasting is an important discipline. There's a time and place for it. But to just fast isn't enough. Eventually, Samson said, I need something in my life, and, it's gonna, and then I'm going to find it in women. And so we have got to learn how to connect with God and with people. We've talked lots about the God, but I'm going to leave that out right now. But we actually also just need community with each other. And when our lives get filled with community, it actually becomes way easier to say no to junk. A person whose life is full of community and has a lot of healthy relationships in their life with family, friends, in the church, and all kinds of these things, and serving is a person who will have an easier time saying no to pornography, for example. They've actually done, they've, there's actually research on this. 
A person who, whose life is full of healthy relationships, they're serving, they're connected with people, lots of friends, connected in the church, all this sort of stuff, they actually have an easier time. It's harder for them to get addicted to things, and it's easier for them to say no to things. It's like they have a built-in self-control. Well, the built-in self-control is, it's like the person who's full of steak isn't going around looking for chips and donuts. But so many of us now, we're alone all the time. And I'm not just talking about alone, no people in the room. We're alone with our media. Like you could have 10 people in the room. And if you're just on media, you're actually alone. You can be around people all day at work and it's just busy, 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 but you're not really connected to people. You might think, I've got so many people in my life, but actually you're alone. You're not feeling that need inside. And as long as you're not feeling that need inside, you're going to end up having to fill it somewhere else. And so we've got to learn, if we're ever going to overcome this thing, it's more than just saying, we just got to restrict our media. It's going to have to come from, we have to actually so fill our lives with something different that eventually we look and we say, hey, I just don't have time for that much media anymore. So a bit of a weekly challenge here. Person, and some questions. This isn't just all go and do this. It's pray about this this week. Again, a person whose life is full of community, eating with others, serving with others, praying with others, doing life with others, and who is connected to God is a person who will be more full on the inside and will have a much easier time saying no to their appetites than others. So, build more community into your life. For example, those of you who are married, and some of you, and I know, I talk to many people, and it's like they spend so much time on media, it's like, when do you spend time with your spouse? Well, they're in the room. But I challenge you, those of you who aren't feeling connected to your spouse. Take up a hobby with your spouse, something to pray about, or just something. You know, set up a weekly date night. Do something with your spouse other than just looking at Facebook while they're in the room. Or looking up, you know, the next, whatever you want to buy. Some, some people just, it's, all their life is on like eBay and places like that. It's like, wow, yeah, it's cool that you're getting good deals, but try and live a little bit. A little bit of laughter on that one, so I know and there's a bunch of people, right, that are doing that. That's always good. Find at least one place to serve every week. Oh, I know a lot of you are doing that already, but as you know that serving in a church is one of the best ways to connect with people. It's not just go to a Bible study. Actually, it's just serve. Do something you love to do. Do it with people. And, and I know sometimes what we say is we're too tired. And certainly there's a, there's a place for being too tired. There's a place where it's just too busy. Absolutely, I totally get that. And, and some of you need to not do some of these things because you're already doing them all. Okay, but some of us, it's like, I'm too tired. I, I can't go out and serve. I'm, I'm just too tired. But I want you to think about something for just a moment. Okay? Think of the difference in how you feel. And again, there is a place. I'm, we, I watch movies. Oh, movies are great. They're stories, right? Me and our kids, and we watch every Sunday night for sure. We, we'll watch something. So I'm not against watching things, but think of the difference what you feel. Go home at night, so you're exhausted. You go home at night, and you watch a movie all by yourself. Okay? Guys, girls, whatever it is. Or think back to some of those times when you went out with a bunch of people and you did some random acts of kindness, you shoveled some people's driveways or whatever. What was the difference in how you felt afterwards? Isn't there a difference? You know there's a difference. No, I'm not saying it's bad. Some days you're, you are just exhausted. You do you just need to go home and watch a movie. That's fine. But for a lot of us, that's just our default. We just always go there. But think of how you actually feel afterwards. And I know how you feel afterwards because lots of you sit in my office and tell me. I went home, I just felt exhausted, so I just went home and watched a movie by myself. And where did that lead? Well, afterwards I felt empty, and for a lot of guys, it ends up leading into all kinds of lustful things. Because you were by yourself. You thought you were relaxing because you were lying on the couch. But there's actually more to relaxing than just lying on the couch. There's actually connecting with people. 
And we all know that it's when you go out and you serve and you do stuff with people. Not Again, not that you do that every single night. There's also a place of being over busy. But it's when you go out and you do those things, that's where you have memories and you have laughter and you come home and you actually feel full. Isn't that true? You come back from a night of serving and connecting with people, very less, much less likely that you're going to go home and lust before you go to bed than if you just stay home by yourself and watch a bunch of media. This doesn't have to do with saying no to junk food all the time. It's about filling our lives with real stuff and not being Samson. It's a lot more than just saying, okay, Samson made some huge mistakes, so I'm just not going to do it. The reason Samson made those mistakes is there was a lifestyle behind it that fed his mistake-prone life. And we've got to change the way we live, and we absolutely need people in community if we're ever going to be strong. Another thing to pray was just commit to getting together with people at least once a week for supper or something. Again, he says, some of you are like, oh, but it's so much work to clean the house. Did you know your house doesn't have to be perfect before you have people over? Some of you guys, elbow your wife, right? I mean, it shouldn't be gross. You know, washing the bathroom sink is sometimes nice. Every once in a while, right? But commit, just get together. Did you know, just fill your love when your life, the more, and again, I know there's a place too. Certain personalities, and I'm one of these, there's extroverts. I'm not one of those. You know, like Donovan, people like that, they're with people, that charges them up. I'm with people, I'm like, hey, now I need a break. I need to go home. I need to have a little bit quiet. That's totally fine. There's totally differences of personality there. But even for those of us who are introverts, we were made for people. And many of us are just far too alone in our lives. We're isolated. We don't know our neighbors. We hardly see our families. We're not hardly connected with people in church. We're just so busy with work, 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 and then in the evening it's media, sit in my house. And actually, that'll ruin your life eventually, to live like that. And you'll never go past ordinary. God's made you for something, and you just think, I'm too tired to do this other stuff. What you'll find is, one of the reasons so many Christians in North America are tired is not because they have too much physical activity, it's because they're not connected enough to people. And if you would connect to people, there's life in that. And lastly, get involved in a cell group for community. You say, I didn't like my last cell group. Great, that's a calling from God for you to start one. <laughs> Unless you're a jerk, in which case Ray Yoder's just going to say no to you. It's just about having people. It's about being vulnerable. It's about praying together. It's about the more, again, this is everything. You, you say, what does it have to do with Samson? I don't see this in the Samson story. Yeah, you don't see any of this stuff in the Samson story because Samson screwed up. If you do everything Samson did, you're going to end up like Samson ended up. And I'm helping you to see there's this track. We just get on this track, this rut of the way we live. And then we wonder, why can't I stop lusting? I'm trying real hard. Why can't I stop coveting? Why do I just feel so disconnected and empty and depressed inside? And one of the reasons is because of the isolated, media-filled lives that we live in North America. So get involved in the cell group. You know, actually, again... Is it something stressful? I know many people get stressed, you know, about cell. It's like, oh, I got to lead something. And then you go, but, but again, I want to just, part of it is just spiritual. The devil doesn't want you to go. But if you go, again, how do you feel when you're coming home? After you've had a night praying with people, worshiping with people, getting into their lives, sharing food together and stuff. How do you feel after that night as opposed to the night where you just stayed home and did stuff by yourself? Again, there's a place for being home and doing stuff by yourself. I'm not saying there's no place for that. But for many of us, that's all we do here in North America. And that's why your soul is dying. You were made for the two greatest commandments. Love people, love God. Love people, love God. Not love yourself and come to church. Love people, love God. Serving, community, prayer, being with people. And then lastly, 
If you're struggling with, with your appetites, if you're struggling with too much media or with various other appetites, with lust or whatever, come get help. Why would you suffer on your own? Don't get to that place like Samson where you get to this place of apathy where it's like, you know what, I know this is going to destroy me, but I just can't help it, and you just give up and you just go with it. You, did you know God didn't make you? A lot of you just feel guilty. I've tried a hundred times and I can't stop whatever X. You're completely enslaved to your appetites. I've tried a thousand times and I can't stop and you feel guilty. God must hate me. You know what the thing is? God never made you to overcome it on your own. So you're sitting there beating yourself up. God must hate you. God doesn't hate you. He says, I love you so much. Would you please go and get some help? Like he didn't give us. Self-control is a great thing. It's a fruit of the Spirit. But self-control is not the be-all and end-all. I've lived much of my life. Many of us live under this subconscious assumption that God gave us enough self-control to overcome whatever we need to overcome, and it's not true. We need people. So you're in some kind of thing. You're like, well, I just could never share that with someone. You just need to. Actually, it feels really good. It feels really good to be able to have some people around you where you can just totally be yourself, completely open up and say, this is what I struggle with. And they go, eh, so do we. And you go, oh, I feel so much better. Can we just pray together? Can you help me? And you come to church for personal ministry and do all that stuff. You get with people. And of course, there's the connecting with God. But don't be a Samson. That's a messy, sad, gross, ruinous ending. And none of us wants to go there. And, but too many people still do today. But there's hope for you and for me and for our appetites. If we'll do what God wants to do, and that is connect to people and connect to God, let me pray for you and then we'll sing. Lord Jesus, I thank you for Samson's story. It is a warning story of the foolishness, of the self-deception, of the apathy, and of the ordinariness that will dog us all of our lives if we cannot get our appetites under control. And so, Lord, there is hope. I just want to speak hope over everybody here today. For sure, here this morning, there are people who don't feel, there are people here right now who feel hopeless in the face of certain appetites. They don't feel like they can control them anymore. They feel like they're hopeless, like they'll never have enough self-control. I just want to say to those people here today, you don't have enough self-control. God didn't give you enough self-control, and that's okay. There's still hope for you. Lord, I pray that as a church, we will become a family, that we will intentionally pray and say, Lord, do we need to put more people into our lives? Do we have, need to have more serving? Do we need to have more connection? Do we need to put more, invest more time into that so that we have less time for media and just being alone? Lord Jesus, we need each other and we need you. I pray that you would stir this up in us as a body here at Southland, that we would become the most loving, connected, vulnerable, serving church in this country. And from that, Lord, church renewal is going to spread because that is renewal when we begin to live that way. That is renewal when we begin to live as a gigantic family where we're just into each other's lives and filled with joy. And Lord, as we get filled with joy like that, we will have the strength to overcome the appetites that sometimes enslave us. And so I thank you, Jesus, for what you're going to do. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.